the volume. Oral Sessions is brought to you by FanDuel. It's never been easier to play fantasy on FanDuel. Whether you love basketball, golf, soccer, or any other fantasy sport, there's a contest for every fan. FanDuel, more ways to win. Hey guys, welcome to Oral Sessions. What a fun week we've had. We've already had on WWE Champion Big E, my dude. And now, following that, I've been moving things on over to the world of mixed martial arts, the UFC, to Anthony Smith. This man fresh off of a victory, a first-round submission over Ryan Spann. Uh, and things got a little heated in the octagon afterwards. Uh, and I wanted to pick his brain. I wanted to talk to him about what was going on with him. Also, uh, I host a show on, on Sirius XM on Fight Nation with Misha Tate called Throwing Down with Renee and Misha. And we had Anthony on, uh, but, you know, those are way more abbreviated versions of interviews. We only get like, you know, 10 minutes or so with somebody. So I was like, damn, I want to have Anthony Smith on my show to have him on oral sessions, and like really get to pick his brain. Um, Cause it seemed like he had a lot to talk about. Um, and I really wanted to know more about his story and about his journey. And, you know, I think that was a big thing that happened between him and Ryan's family was feeling disrespected on his way into that match with him. Uh, you know, not feeling like, his journey mattered or that Ryan's fan was not paying attention to that. So that just, you know, that lit up my brain a little bit. I was like, what is your journey? I want to know more about what's going on with uh, Anthony Smith. Um, so he was cool. He hopped on. Uh, he's obviously a very busy man doing all of the media rounds. He's a dad and he just got off of a fight, but he was so great to be able to sit down with me, uh, give me an hour of his time and have a little hangout. So uh, let's get into it. Here it is. Here's Anthony Smith. doing i'm good just been hanging out doing the dad thing all morning and stopping in to hang out for a bit what is a morning like for you when you're in dad mode typically i wake up with a four-year-old banging an ipad on my face perfect trying to figure out (laughs) if she can watch it or not and uh (laughs) i usually let her call in bed with me for a little while and watch her there's her her two sisters get up they get showered and i'm mixed so they all have crazy curly hair so that's usually a disaster (laughs) <laughs> have you mastered the hair? I have. Good. I'm, 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 I'm pretty proud of that, to be honest, because <laughs> it's pretty tough. What's your like go to? Are you like YouTubing stuff? Like, how did you figure out how to do little girl hair? Well, my wife I honestly figured a lot of it out. Just and, and I have a little sister, too. So she helped a little bit there. Nice. That's impressive. Um, OK, so I have a three month old daughter. I have been a mom for like 90 days. I'm figuring it out. So our daughter sleeps in bed with us. Did you guys do this? With our first one, we didn't know any better. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? Like, you don't know. That was the biggest shock to me. I had researched every little thing of like having a baby. What do we do? How does this go? And then we got her home. I was like, oh my God, I think about where she, like you assume she's going to sleep in like a bassinet or something, but that's just not really the reality when you bring, at least not for us, but I know it's like that big, no, no, I'm probably going to get roasted on the internet for this. So whatever, have at it. Our oldest slept with us for like the whole first year of her life. We were kind of the same way. Like we thought, oh yeah, we'll just like do this pack and play or the bassinet or like next to the bed. And and my wife is always breastfed. So like being in the same room is obviously much more convenient, it's, you know, in the middle of the night, nobody wants to meander around the house at four in the morning. Like you don't really figure the schedule out. So it's, it's easier just to lay with them. And, and that that's just how it worked. I, I think for like the first 
three months or four months. I think she slept in like one of those rock and play things that rocks while she's sleeping, but it had a timer on it. So I think like every 14 minutes or something, we had to wake up and turn it back on. It's like the only thing she would sleep in. It was awful. <laughs> How did you get her out of your bed? I'm like, I'm not even close to it, but like, oh my God. I just had to leave. It was just, they just cried out, you know, like it was a mess. My wife stayed home the first time uh, she was working then. And she stayed home for like the 12 weeks from work. And she worked overnight uh, at a hospital and our oldest had such bad like separation anxiety. If I had hair, I'd have pulled it all out. It was terrible. I remember it being like winter time and like a foot of snow on the ground. I just had to go. I remember going out on the back deck and like just leaving her in her room because she was just hysterical and I couldn't get her to calm down or, or anything. So I remember like sitting in like a foot of snow and like shorts and no shirt on and just sat there like, what in the fuck did I do? Like, what did we do? This is <laughs> it's really scary <laughs> when that, so our daughter did that last night and same thing. Like my daughter's with me. A lot of the time my husband travels wrestling, like he's busy a lot. So my daughter's with me a majority of the time, but he got home last night, passed the baby off to him and she fucking lost it. Like lost it. And to the point that like I had her back and like, she was not coming. I think she had gas or like, I don't know what was going on, but I'm walking in the backyard with her. I'm like pacing around the pool. I'm like, my neighbors probably think I'm like pinching my kid. She was flipping out. But when that happens, like it's a scary moment. You're like, is there another adult here? Cause I'm the one that's responsible for this. And I don't know what the fuck to do. I own this thing. I don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, with it. Like is there a return policy? What's going on? Is she broken? What happened? Fortunately, the hospital that she worked at at the time where we lived was pretty close. It was only like a five or 10 minute drive. So it would get so bad. I mean, it would be hours. She'd leave at seven o'clock at night and she'd call to check in at like 10. And she'd still be losing her shit. So she'd just have to drive home real quick from work and tell her coworkers, like, hey, I'll be right back. Like, give me 15 or 20 minutes. And she'd have to drive. She'd walk in the door, hold the baby, the baby go right to sleep. And I would be, <laughs> I'd be even more pissed about that. <laughs> yeah. Like, I've been doing this shit for three hours and it took you 10 minutes. This is so I yeah. figured it out eventually. I just <laughs> like the car. Yeah. So, like, I just take her in car rides. So, we, you know, every night, that's what we did for, for months. I just take her <laughs> in the car and we drive around for like 30 minutes. And I just really carefully try to carry her back in the house. And sometimes she'd wake up and we'd go back driving. When I just started doing the serious show and having that like three hour chunk, she's with my husband that whole time. And by the time I come downstairs, he's like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, she, and then as soon as I take her and plop her down next to me, she's like, okay, I'm good. And the same thing. He's like, you've got to be kidding me. Why? Like, what the hell? Yeah, it's not. So babies, everybody have a baby. It's a great time. What an adventure. It gets easier though. You, you figure it out as you have more kids, you, you figure it out like what works and what doesn't like. I remember the, the youngest, she's four now, but my wife was like, oh, we'll just let her sleep with us tonight. And I was like, not a fucking chance. <laughs> I'm not doing this shit again. And, but then I kind of messed that one up too, because she's super attached to me. My wife was in nursing school, like finishing school when she was, when she was a baby. So she was with me a lot. So she's still super attached to me. So then I would, you know, then I'd lay in bed with her to, in her bed. Then every single night I have to spend an hour laying in bed with her. And so we had to get out of that too, but <laughs> better than her being in her that's for sure. Honestly, it's like, whatever's going to make them happier. Like, it's fine. We'll deal with the repercussions of this stuff later. Who cares? Whatever gets us through it. How do you like balance training and all of that and in dad life. I mean, that's got to be pretty difficult to, to kind of strike the balance between all that when you're in fight camp. Yeah. Well, out of camp is different. So when I'm out of camp, it's, it's fairly simple. You know, the, the, as of right now, the three we have are, are in school. 
the youngest is in like half days, but my wife doesn't work. So that's pretty simple. I train in the evening time just to kind of, it's more of like a maintenance thing, kind of skill building, just trying to stay in shape and, and continue to grow my technique part of my game. But when I'm in camp, that one's really tough. So I do all my training camps in Denver and I have since 2015 or 2017 rather. So I go out Monday morning. I think the, there's like a United flight that leaves at 6 a.m. So I leave here at 6 a.m. Monday morning and then I make it to practice in time for my first team training session in Denver at 10 a.m. Train all week long. I stay in Denver and then Friday, uh, there's like a 450 flight. So I spar Friday mornings and then I jump on that 450 flight home Friday and then I'm home Friday evening. So, okay, I've got a couple of questions. One, driving to that fucking Denver airport is such a kick in the ass. It's horrible. It's so far from everything. Who decided to put the fucking airport nowhere what close the to the city? It's horrible, <laughs> especially when you're like on the West Coast. You're like, I can get a later flight out. I'll be able to red eye, like no problem. And you're like, oh, no, it's like an hour to the airport. So buckle up for that. And then there's like the fucking demon stallion outside with the red blaring eyes. Right. <laughs> it's weird, it's isn't so it? weird. Such a bizarre airport. But changing the altitude going back and forth, does that fuck you up? Initially, the first couple of weeks, I'm usually pretty, pretty toasted. I got wicked headaches and tired and just the altitude, just training in altitude when you live not altitude, like closer to sea level is pretty shitty. But in the end, I think it helps my conditioning. I think it gives me an advantage over a lot of guys in the game just because I train at altitude. I can't even imagine. I mean, I mean, first of all, I'm not an athlete, so I extra can't imagine. But um, we would do shows with WWE in Denver often. I remember like, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to hit the gym really quick before we pop out to go grab some drinks. I jumped on the treadmill. I was like, why can I not run? What is happening? I could not figure out what's happening with my body. Like I just didn't take into account the uh, the altitude. And I was like, oh, gotcha. And also that first drink rocks your world. I was just going to say, you got to watch out for that <laughs> yes. drink too. Oh, it's terrible. Gotta be prepared and easy. Honestly. Oh my gosh. Um, okay. So I really wanted to have you pop on my podcast because I got to have you pop on uh, Throwing Down with Renee and Misha, our serious XM show. But we only got to talk to you for a little bit. And I feel like there's so much more to talk to you about that I really wanted to like go a little bit more in depth with you about. You know, coming off of this victory over, over Ryan Spann, the first round submission, congratulations. Hell of a fucking showing. But it was it was afterwards, you know, you guys got into the, you know, it was a little testy between the two of you, especially you over him. You know, you had the post fight interview and just talking about feeling disrespected and that he was not respecting your journey through your entire MMA career. And yeah, I I just kind of want to get more into that about what the whole story of your journey. I mean, obviously, like, you know, you can research you and hop on Wikipedia and read different articles here and there. But, you know, I just wanted to talk to you more about what that journey is to slap a little more fucking respect on your name. I didn't need to swear on that. That was aggressive. Can we delete the swearing? (laughs) Oh, we're probably going to do a lot of swearing. (laughs) If anyone watched my post-fight interview, I... (laughs) I will not shy away from a swear word or two. I never think about it when it flies out of my mouth. But if I hear it back, I'm like, you are such a piece of shit. Like, I sound like such trash. Why do I speak like that? I'm from Nebraska. So I I feel like I trust people more when they curse. I don't know why. Like, if you have like a pretty constant F word that flies out of your mouth, like, I feel like we could definitely be friends. Well, here we are then. Buckle up. (laughs) I got all the swear words for you. Um, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, where do we start? Where, I mean, I guess at the very beginning, your love of MMA, I mean, for you to step into an octagon or to start training, what was sort of the thing that sparked that for you, that, that love? I didn't even have a love for MMA. I had my first amateur fight when I was 17. 
I was just a, just a super fucked up kid. Like I had a lot of shitty things happen to me like really what? early. My dad was never around. And, uh, I, you know, I lived in a rat or in Colorado Springs for, for a little while. And then we moved to like, be closer to family. Like my parents got divorced when I was real young and my dad was a crack cocaine addict and super abusive to my mom. And so they got divorced and my grandparents came out to Colorado to kind of help with the kids. And it just, she wanted to be closer to the rest of the family. So we moved to a little small town in Nebraska. It's called Nebraska city. Uh, it's made five or 6,000 people at the most. And I was not that I'm super tan or anything, but I was, I'm definitely different compared to like, you know, middle America white folks. So I, I just had a tough time kind of me and my sister just kind of blending in. We're like the only people of color in our entire school. So you know, there's some bullying and, and just some of that bullshit that goes along with that. I was able to kind of clear that pretty fast because the only thing people in Nebraska really give a shit about is sports. So if you're good at something, they can look past all the other stuff that bothers them. Like maybe we don't like black people, but you can play ball. We, we can, we can be friends. So were you getting into fights with, with kids that were like bullying you or, you know, whoever was kind of bullying you? Not initially. So I was raised with all women. Like and or by all women, it was just me and four females in the house. So like I've always had a softer side to me. So I was like fighting wasn't really my thing. Like I really liked playing football, but like I wasn't super into confrontation and fighting. So eventually, I just got sick of it. Like once my grandpa passed away, I kind of just stopped giving a fuck about anything. I just it didn't matter anymore. How old were you when your grandfather passed away? I think it was 14, 15. So you felt like you had to like really step up and like now you're really the man of the house. Yeah. And young. That's still super young. Yeah. And he was like my hero. You know, he was the only father figure I'd ever had. And he was like, this is the coolest goddamn dude in the world. So it kind of wrecked me. It really did. It, it just, and I, you know, it, he died of cancer. He just wasted away, you know, like right in front of us. And it was just me and my mom taking care of him. So I was helping give him baths and helping him get up and down and giving him his meds. And like, like I was his caretaker. What kind of cancer did he have? Um, well, it started in his throat. Uh, he already had it like a kidney disease. So then it, it went straight to his kidneys after that. From his diagnosis to the time he died was like six months. So it was really fast. And once he died, that's when I really started getting in a lot of trouble. I started partying really hard. And I really stopped giving a fuck about anybody. So the second someone would say something, I just lose my shit and I just start fighting. That always leads to other problems. You know, you're getting in trouble and getting arrested. And so I did that whole song and dance for a really long time. How many times did you get arrested? Oh, several. Can't even tell you a lot. <laughs> At one point in time, I was actually awarded to the state because um, my mom couldn't control me. Oh, shit. What happens with that? Like, what does that even like mean? It just means that like... <sighs> Now the the state kind of gets to control what you do. And, you know, then they threaten you with like removing you from the home. And, you know, it's just a, it was a oh mess. Oh my gosh. Yeah. How was your mom during all that? I mean, she was, she was, you know, just did her best. Always a fantastic provider. Always worked really hard, you know, gave us anything we ever wanted. It's just, um, I, I guess I needed someone, not something. She's very good at giving things. She's also, you know, she's a workaholic to this day. She still just, that's all she does. She'd rather be at work than anywhere else. So what does she do? Um, she's like in, uh, administration of nursing, like it's like an administrator at a assisted living facility. Same thing she's always done. So yeah, like she just wasn't around that much. It was just me and my hurt feelings you know, all the time. So yeah, I just, I was, I was just in trouble and I was partying so fucking hard. And I just dropped out of high school and I seen this like flyers, like this really crude little bullshit black and white flyer. It said something like amateur fight night. And I was like, Oh, what's that shit? Let's go watch it. So only my, one of my buddies grabbed like a 12 pack of beer and booze cruise to Omaha, which is like an hour and 15 minutes. 
I was like, well, we'll just watch it and see what this shit's all about. And it was like the coolest goddamn thing in the world. Like looking back <laughs> at it, like it's like, I can't believe that shit was legal. It wasn't even, it wasn't even sanctioned on, in, like by the athletic commission at that time. What was like the setup for it? it was like some like underground fight club shit. Yeah. Kind of. It was called Omaha fight club. And, and they kind of marketed it to the, to the gang members a lot. Like put your guns down, put your fists up. And so like a lot of like, you know, like rival gangs were bringing some of their beefs to this place and they just fight it out like in a safe space. Is that like a better way to solve some problems potentially? Well, nobody got shot. Yeah. So I maybe, <laughs> I don't but know. Maybe. Okay. I was so fascinated. Like I just couldn't believe that this was allowed. And it was just like a regular ass cage, like the same kind of fence you'd see on someone's chain link fence on their house. It was like that kind of fence, except it was in a square and it wasn't even like up on a platform. It was like on the ground on top of a wrestling mat. And it was like $7 to get in. And it was a blast. And I remember the announcer came on the like the microphone and said, we have an uneven number of fighters who signed. Cause like, you didn't even know who you were supposed to fight back then. You just show up, sign up on a piece of paper, and then they just match you up as close as they could and wait and experience. Like, so you had no idea you were going to fight. So the announcer said they had an odd number of people sign up. Oh my God. And said, we need someone who weighs between 160 and 190 pounds. And I, for whatever reason, I remember my hand just going up and I was like, fuck oh it, I'll do it. <laughs> that's how I started. I'd never, like, I'd watched like some of the UFC, like the older, like VHSs. I tricked my grandpa into renting me at like Blockbuster, but yeah, that's how I started. I didn't know the how rules. How did it go? It was awesome. Like I got beat. I lost my first four amateur fights. Actually, I just didn't know the rules. I'd never trained. I, you know, like, so you get like a quick rules meeting and someone throws you a boil and bite mouthpiece and a pair of gym shorts and some weird gloves and you just go out and fight it out. So I had a really good fight. The first one I got arm barred. Uh, I was so, this is how stupid I was. I didn't even know how to tap. <laughs> so I just got like my elbow dislocated. I was just like screaming and it was, it was wild. I just kept going back and some old guy, he's still around too. His name's Marty Anderson. He was like helping run the show at the time. And he said, Hey man, I think you got some potential. I kind of run like a small training group out of the back of my house. You want to come check it out? I was like, yeah, sure. So I started training with him and I trained with that guy in a little add on to the back of his house, my entire amateur career, all the way until I turned pro in 2008. I naturally relate everything to pro wrestling. That's the world that I come from. But I mean, there's so many of like the indie wrestlers that have like the backyard wrestling and I've just never really heard it put in those terms with MMA as well. I mean, everyone's like, oh, I went to like Gracie Jiu Jitsu. I went well, that's how here it is or there, now. like whatever. Back in the yeah. day, that, like when I started, anyone that started before probably 2008 or 2007, that's going to like, their stories are probably going to be a little bit similar to mine, unless they were a, like a division one wrestler that came straight out of college. And, you know, they kind of already had the the path, but my come up is very similar to like an indie scene wrestler. Like it's just in some of the places that I fought as an amateur, like there's so many crazy fucking stories there too. Like <laughs> I fought in strip clubs and bowling alleys and <laughs> fucking barns and, and like state fairs. And I mean, it, it was just crazy, crazy, crazy That's outdoor amazing. events so and like, like small true towns. Carny lifestyle still hundred percent. It was, it was nuts. And I even fought a lot of those crazy places. Like even after I was a pro and the way I made my money, this is why I got so crazy. And I was in all these fucked up places. Back then, and I think in, maybe in a, lot, in a lot of sports, you know, at the very beginning stages of people's career, there's always like lots of sketchy people involved, whether that's gang affiliates or, you know, there's some, you know, there's like some very similar like mob type tie, ties in a lot of these organizations because the money has to come from somewhere. So I started making money off the winnings of other people's bets. So, you know, I was, I was winning for a little while, you know, I started getting good and, you know, these old school, you know, these old school gangster dudes like guys in their sixties, just old ass white guys would be like, 
all right, kid, we're going to have you fight this guy in two weeks. And I'm going to put $10,000 on you. And like, like that amount of money to me was like mind blowing. I couldn't even imagine how, you know, like it, it was so much. So then they'd bring some other guy from some other city and we'd fight, they'd bet on me and they'd flip me a thousand bucks. And I was even that amount of money. It was, I thought I was rich. Yeah. So then there'd be a guy in Sioux city, Iowa that had some title and some bullshit organization. So they'd be like, all right, we're going to send you to Sioux city. So I'd go up there. They'd bet, they'd bet whatever they bet and then flip me off, of, you know, break me off a piece of the winnings. That's how I ended up in the strip club. It was a bunch of like Asian gang members in, in Minneapolis, <laughs> Minnesota. Oh my like, oh, was God. Nuts. Yeah. And that's how I kind of supported myself like through my amateur career. That's crazy. What that's, it's so fascinating. I mean, there's shady sides to everything, but yeah, like you said, it's like that, like come up, like where's the money coming from? Mm-hmm. Guess I'll follow wherever. And yeah, I mean, a thousand bucks then is like, bring it. And they were so cool about it. Like they just paid me and then just said, get the fuck out of here. Like they didn't want me to hang out. They didn't want me to be a part of whatever they were a part of. Like they just broke me off some hundreds and I left. Were there ever some other shady people that did try to get you like involved in some more shady shit? Not really. People. I, I think it was pretty clear that I was, I was focused on one goal and I just wanted to win and I needed some way to fund it. You know, I think that they appreciated that. I didn't ask questions and they didn't give any information. I didn't give a shit where it came from as long as it was going in my pocket. After 20 years on the same sideline, Tom Brady and Bill Belichick meet this weekend as opponents. It's the GOAT QB versus the GOAT head coach. You can be part of the epic showdown with unbelievable odds on FanDuel Sportsbook. Right now, new customers can win $125 on a $5 bet if either team scores a touchdown. That's right, 25 to 1 odds on any touchdown anytime during the Tampa New England game. Get up in there. Some of the reasons that I love FanDuel, it's the number one sports book in America. It's so easy to use. The fact that I can get on there and place these bets, get those payouts real quick. There's no other place that I want to be. Sign up for FanDuel Sportsbook today using promo code Renee and make your first bet one for the history books. Don't forget to use the promo code Renee so they know that I sent you. Disclaimer, 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in seven days. Maximum refund, $10. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Same game parlay available for multiple sports in all states on mobile and web. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG for Colorado, New Jersey, or Virginia. Or 1-800-9-WITH-IT for Indiana, 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. Tennessee Redline, 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. Visit www.1800gambler.net for West Virginia or call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona. So talking about like your respect, you feeling disrespected. Where does your respect aspect come in for the MMA world? I mean, you coming in from the way that you did to just sort of like start to respect the discipline of it and respecting, you know, just the entire business and your skill set coming into it. Like when did that start to kick in for you? I think it started when I realized how hard it was. And, and that's where the frustration comes. Like the guys these days, and I sound like such an old asshole when I say it like this, but kids that start doing MMA or that are starting like guys that are just now getting signed or whatever, like they have no idea how hard it used to be. I joke, but like half the people that are on the UFC roster right now wouldn't have even gotten a look back when I was trying to make it. 
it's just there's so many more there's so many more opportunities on the roster there's so many more fights a year and there's other other organizations that will also pay you well so there's a, you know there's competition with the UFC so i think that's where it started it, it was just so goddamn hard to get to the UFC you know i'd seen so many really good guys get there and not make it and not stay even they'd go two and out and that was it so i think that's part of it and i really bought into the, kind of the martial arts process like you know, you, uh, you don't treat your training partners bad. You don't, you know, like you see Jake Paul posting videos, him beating the shit out of training partners. I would never do that. Not because I give a shit about what they're seeing. It's, I would never be that guy just beating the shit out of training partners for no reason. So it's just a different world these days. Then I guess I came up and I, I'm like the, I'm like the youngest guy in the generation that's probably ahead of me. So like I, I started so young when I was training, I was training with a lot of the guys that were I wouldn't say significantly older than me, but you know, guys that are getting close to their forties now, and I'm only 33. Those are the guys that were like my main training partners. So I think I just hold that chill son in type of mentality. It's definitely different than the people are nowadays. So I guess I do feel like the old guy, like talking about young whippersnappers. And, <laughs> grizzled old vet. <laughs> yeah. I'm the grizzled old guy now. What was your family's reaction? I mean, like you said, being raised by all women, always surrounded by all women to you sort of stepping into this, not only, I mean, even just doing it as a, a hobby to start and then to start making money. And now it's your, it's your career. It's always been your career. I mean, did they think that it was going to go that way? Well, I don't know what they thought, how they thought it was going to go. My mom loved it though. I think solely because I had a focus because the second I met Marty Anderson, my whole life changed. I had something to focus on. So like every single day I drove an hour and 15 minutes one way to go train with Marty. So like everything I did was like scheduled around that. Like no matter what, that's, I'm, that's the one thing I'm doing every single day. So she helped me out a lot. As soon as I turned 18, I moved to Omaha and she helped me get a place and kind of help fund some of the stuff that I was doing to try to just get better. But she did that because I think she seen, I guess, how focused I was. And I don't think she cared what it was. It just wasn't partying and getting in trouble and going to jail and all the stupid shit I was doing. For sure. I mean, put your focus on something and make shit happen. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, I think something that's interesting that you said too, is like the amount of time that you've been putting into your career and constantly pouring that time in, you could be a surgeon at this point. It's like, yeah, it's not some overnight success. Obviously it's like you've had so many different moments and peaks and valleys throughout your career. Um, what keeps you on track to, to stay consistently focused like that? Uh, well, I mean, obviously my, my family, for sure. They keep me, keep me focused and, and at least goal oriented on things that I want to give other people that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. But honestly, it's just the world title. That's it. Like once I win it, I'll probably just say, fuck it. I'm done. <laughs> like it's the only thing that I haven't done yet. You know, I've done the main events. I've gotten the bonuses. I made the money. I've, I've you know, I've kind of carved out other niches and, and places of business and broadcasting. And, and like, I got a lot of other shit I could do, but I just can't get this world title out of my head. You know, it's, it's, it's all I want. Literally keeps me up at night. What do you need to check off to be able to get there for Dana White to make this happen? I think I just need one more win. I think that's, I think that's where we're at now. Alexander Rakic is obviously willing. Uh, it's a rematch for me that, that I really wanted anyways. What is sort of your stance on the way fighters are paid? How much fighters are paid? Do you... Oh, you're trying to get me in trouble. Am I trying to get you in trouble? I don't know. You know, it's the same thing in professional wrestling too. I think where it's like, it kind of all falls under the same 
you know, umbrella in terms of like, there's no unionization and there's so right. many uh, X, Y, and Z, blah, right. blah, blah. Everybody's yeah. mad. Nobody wants to, yeah, either people are mad about it or they don't want to talk about it at all. I do talk about it sometimes, but anytime I talk about it, people are just like, oh yeah, it's just being the company guy. Like I can only speak about fighter pay from my own perspective. I'm pretty well taken care of. So like, that's the problem is it's the guys that aren't paid really well that, that maybe haven't been in the sport or in the UFC that long or not crazy popular. Like those are the guys that are obviously pretty pissed about it. I do sometimes have a hard time relating to those guys. Cause like I live a pretty humble lifestyle as well. And I, I live in a pretty cheap place. Like Omaha's really affordable. That's the key, man. All these people that want to be in New York and California. Come on, man. That ain't it. If my exact house that I live in right now was in Denver, like where I train, it'd be like a $3 million house or more. I'm not, there's no way. I'm just going to stay where I'm at. I like it here. That's some of it is like, you know, I'm not out here trying to have a yacht. Like I drive a Dodge Ram. You know what I mean? <laughs> like yeah, yeah. I don't need like 10 <laughs> Range Rovers or anything. I'm good. I feel like you and my husband would be good friends. That was like the first thing when he could like, he went out and bought a Dodge Ram and he's like, I can go buy a car. Oh my God. That's not my lifestyle. Like I'm kind of a, you know, I'm a small town kind of country guy. So that's part of it. So like I make way more than I ever thought I was ever going to make. Like, and I never even thought about the money. It was always about the title. So for me, I'm pretty comfortable. Do I want to make more money? I think everybody wants to make more money. Like, I think that's kind of the game. I want to make as much as I possibly can. And the UFC wants to pay me as little as they possibly can. That's how like employee and employer works. Like that's just how it goes. So I understand the argument. I think that MMA as a whole, I think is fairly new. You know, it's a very young sport. So, you know, I get it, but of course I want to make more money. I get it. I'm personally doing just fine. <laughs> so, <laughs> Good. I, so and, and like I'm headed into a contract negotiation as well. So like we're going to be having tough conversations and there's going to be hurt feelings and whatever, but I, I have no doubt that we're going to come to a, you know, an agreement and everyone will leave happy. Get that bag. Did I ride the fence there? Good enough. <laughs> yeah. You, you okay. got it. Fair <laughs> enough. I get it. I can see it now. Headline comes out. Anthony Smith says everybody's underpaid. Like fuck. Nothing irks me more than I did an interview uh, talking about uh, Biggie winning the, the WWE championship. And somehow it turned into a thing that I said it was just for ratings and like, oh, fuck off. I hate when you do an interview and one thing gets taken out of context. They tried to cancel me during my fight week. What happened? So obviously I'm half black. So like, I think people forget that or a lot of people don't know that. Like, I guess people don't always look at me and say, oh, that guy's mixed. But I said something like, listen, I'm not afraid of Ryan Spann because he's big, black, scary and says mean things. Like, it's not intimidating to me. So, so then of course, like the headlines are like, Anthony Smith says he's not afraid of Ryan Spann because he's black. Oh like, that's my not what I said. God. So then I had to go explain my blackness. So frustrating. I hate when you like, there's nothing worse than like walking away from an interview to and like having that feeling in your gut of like, did I say something that's going to be taken out of context or like, what's, what's the internet going to have to say about this or what headlines going to be on, you know, whatever. You got to be more like Rogan. Like you can't cancel Joe Rogan and you can't cancel Dana White because in order to cancel someone, they got to give a shit. And neither one of those guys give a fuck at all. I love that you said that you just don't give a fuck anymore. And I love not giving any fucks. Um, it's not always easy to arrive to that point, but I feel like magical shit happens when you do arrive at the no more fucks given. What pushed you into the no fucks given territory? I think when I realized that it didn't matter what I said, what I did, who I beat, I hate using the term haters because I hate like giving them like a platform. but the people that are just always talking shit and they always like, you can, I've actually gone back. This is, wasn't even that long ago, but 
someone told me one time, like, you know, the same people that were talking shit about you, you know, at this point are the same people that are now singing your praises. I'm sure you, you, you can probably like relate to this. Sometimes you'll catch like similar, like the same screen name or the same handle. Oh yeah. God These damn, this dude's always talking shit. <laughs> yeah. Like, so if you catch one of those, if you like really scroll back, like you can probably find a time where they were not talking shit. We're like, oh my God, Anthony Smith is the best light heavyweight in the world. And then like six months later, you like take a loss or like have a tough fight or whatever. And they're like, this guy's shit. I always knew he sucked. And you're like, that's when I realized like these fucking people don't even know what they want. Like I said in the interview, like when I was beating the the legends kind of that were that were before me, the former champions, the, the Hall of Famers, when I was finishing those guys, it was always like, oh, they're too old. You know, Anthony's just younger and faster and stronger. Like he's not that good. He's just younger. Then I beat the people in my own generation and they're like, well, I don't know if he can beat the young up and comers. And then you beat the young up and comers and they're like, they're not good enough for experience. So then we just fucking circled right back to now I got to go beat the legends. Like when I realized that there's no winning, like you're never going to make everybody happy. You, you can't make a group of people happy that don't actually know what the fuck they want. It's just a vicious cycle. Exactly. You're constantly trying to, if you're constantly trying to chase approval from these people that don't know what they want, that is exhausting. It's impossible. You sacrifice some of your own shit along the way, trying to get praises from these people that you don't even fucking know. Yeah. You just fuck with your own happiness because then you're trying to figure out why. Because I think at the end of the day, at some point in time in everyone's career or, or life, I think in general, you want people to recognize how hard you work. And then you want people to recognize when you do shit, that's really hard. It's not because I'm like insecure. I need, you know, outside, you know, sources to, to give me confidence. It's like, I just want to make people happy. Like I'm always, I'm kind of a pleaser. So I just want people to be super excited about the same shit that I'm excited about. So like I used to win a fight and it'd be like, Oh my God, I bet people are so excited about this. And then like you go and you're like, like I just did the hardest shit I've ever done in my whole life. Like when I finished Shogun came in short notice, beat the number eight guy in the world in my second fight ever at two Oh five. And I'm like, I'm thinking everyone's going to be really excited and like happy that that happened. And then I see it and they're like, ah, oh, Shogun sucked anyway. It's like, what the fuck? What the fuck? <laughs> that was the hardest shit I ever did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, this is the best moment of my entire career. And leading up to the fight, I suck. Shogun's going to smoke me. He's a legend. He's about to get a title shot. And those same people are like, man, he was never good anyways. So I just stopped giving a fuck, you know, like I'm over it. I'm done with these nerds. How hard is it being a people pleaser? Cause I, I mean, I am this, I'm that as well. I mean, I'm constantly, not that I'm constantly looking for approval. I just want everyone to be happy and I want everyone to be on the same page and celebrate the same shit that I'm into as well. And yeah, it can be really tough. I overextend myself way too much to make sure that everybody else is cool. Do you do that? I do. My wife gets so mad sometimes. She's like, you're always so worried about everybody else. Just focus on yourself. Stop worrying about all the other shit. I'm like, yeah. And at first I was like, she's kind of an asshole. Like she don't give a fuck about nobody. You know? Yeah. And apparently she just far ahead of the curve. She just, she just got there first. My husband can be like that. He, he does not overextend himself for anybody to the point that it gives me anxiety. I'm like, can you like fucking check on that person? Like what's happening? Like, and he just like stays in his own lane all the time. But I'm like, man, he does not burn extra energy on shit. He does not have to worry about. And I wish I could have a little page of that. The Glover to Sheriff fight really did a, a lot for me as far as like the people around me. And like, I, I had like this overwhelming, like fuck everyone type of feeling. Like I was so pissed. Like I was even mad at the media. But like good or bad? I, I think it turned out good at first. It was, it was bad. Cause I was so mad that it was like, it was counterproductive. Cause then it, I think I went too far. Even the people that had always been with me and like the people had always treated me well. And the media members that always went out of their way to be nice or at least 
even if they had something negative to say, to say it respectfully, like I was even like, fuck them too. Like I didn't do any interviews. I just <laughs> walked. You, fuck you, fuck <laughs> yeah. you. I just, You're cool. Fuck yeah, you. <laughs> I just walked around showing my ass to everyone. I didn't give a shit. So I had to come back <laughs> a little bit from that, but cause I was so bitter. I just felt so betrayed, but I, I think I found a, like a healthy middle ground. I mean, it's, it's, it's great to be able to, to watch you in this space. I mean, especially coming off of this victory and everything is looking fantastic for you, but uh, your broadcasting career. Where do we go from here? What are your goals within the broadcasting world? Because everyone sings your praises. I didn't want to be a broadcaster either. <laughs> that was never the plan. Who brought that your way? Another one of those accidents. I just fell into it. On I, I, had, I had no aspirations or dreams or I didn't even know that was an option. I thought those people had like degrees and were super smart. And like, I didn't even know that that was like a direction I could go. It's kind of a long story. So I'll shorten it up as much as I can. But when I fought Shogun in Germany, there was a... Uh, like a fighter meeting that we have with the broadcasters that are calling that fight live. And it was Dan Hardy. And I was such a big Dan Hardy fan. I was like the biggest Dan Hardy fan. And he, he, he just retired from his heart issue. And uh, Dan was calling the fight. So we just got into talking about fights. I was so excited just to talk about fights with Dan Hardy. I didn't even talk to him about mine. That was the whole idea is that they want to see like, what's your game plan? How do you see this fight? You know, is, you know, like what, how are you guys approaching this? But we didn't even talk about mine. I just wanted to talk to him about just the sport in general. So the producers got like, at the end, they're like, all right, guys, that was fantastic. But you guys didn't get anything accomplished there. They started adding this thing called just like the lion's den on every one of my fights after that. So even on events that Dan wasn't working, they'd fly Dan in if I was the main event. And we would just, they just put two chairs, two microphones, one camera, and just put it out on Facebook live. And me and Dan would just talk about fights. That was it for like 45 minutes. So they added that to my media schedule. Dan Hardy had a show on Sirius XM and he was with RJ. Every Tuesday after a pay-per-view, Dan started bringing me on and we called it the Lions Den. And we would talk about like, you know, the main event and co-main event from the previous weekend uh, where, and kind of like where the winners and losers go from there. Dan started getting super busy with his own kind of media side. And then, so they asked me if I wanted to take over Dan's show on Sirius XM. And that's kind of how it, that started. I was like, I had no idea. I didn't know shit about radio. <laughs> Uh, I never. Even I don't listen- know shit about radio. I've done two shows. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing in radio. I've always done TV. I never even listened to Sirius XM before. I'd never even listened to the show. <laughs> and then I was getting ready to fight John Jones, or at least I was moving in that direction. And Jones and Gustafson were fighting their second fight. We're fighting in LA like two weeks before the UFC called and said, Hey, uh, you know, this is kind of attached to you. This is your division. You're likely going to fight the winner. Do you want to work the desk? I was like, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> but- thanks. I was so scared, but like in my head, I said no, but for whatever reason, I was like, yeah, I'd love to. I was like, what in the fuck are you doing? You don't know shit about working the desk. Who else was on that broadcast with you? If it wasn't for goddamn Michael Bisping, Michael Bisping (laughs) saved my ass, but it was me, Michael Bisping, Kenny Florian and Karen Bryant. I didn't know shit about shit. I didn't know shit about fuck. I had no idea what I was doing. I was so terrified. I remember being in like the, like the, the producers meeting. I thought they were speaking another language. I didn't understand shit. They were handing me formats and like, it could have damn well been Spanish. I had no idea what the fuck it said. I was so scared. And Michael really helped me out. He saved my ass a couple of times. He's fantastic. I really enjoy him as a broadcaster. He's so good. He almost ruined it though. Cause he got me and my wife blackout drunk the night before <laughs> oh, no. at the hotel bar. Oh God, it was terrible. But then it, it just kind of spiraled from there. They brought me back. They apparently didn't hate me. And, and I just started getting better. And now I'm kind of the, the veteran. So like, I feel like I do a better job than Bisbing did of preparing like the new guy that they bring in. 
like I explain the format if they don't understand it or help them highlight the shit that actually matters. Cause they hand me a format. There's like seven things on there that actually pertain to me, but I have this whole like pamphlet of shit. And they're like, this is so much information. I don't even know what it is. There's like seven or eight things on there that actually are for you. And then, and then just kind of explaining the flow and what do you do if you get in trouble or, or like, it's like sometimes even the, the wording that they use, it's really hard to have a conversation while someone's in your ear talking to you as well. So just shit like that. I, I didn't have any idea about any of that stuff. Do you guys do like hand signals to each other as well? We would always use like hand signals when like calling like Monday Night Raw, like who's talking and who's going, who's doing what? Like we, it was like this whole other orchestration that was happening from like our, our play-by-play commentator. We, we do. I think we do it more with body language and not so much hand signals just because we're always on camera. Yeah. So it's hard to like, like on radio, it's easy. Bisping does a good job. Like on, I was on his podcast uh, the other day, him and Lewis, they'll like, they use hand signals during their conversation. So they know who's going to go next. Obviously on here on zoom, we do it all the time. We just use the chat. I'm terrible at using the chat. I was doing that. Misha's like, Hey, you should probably like check the chat sometimes during the show. I was like, Oh shit. Right. I didn't even like, I never even think to use it. I mean, my producers are messaging me now, but we use it so infrequently on this podcast. I mean, the podcast, we're just on here shooting the shit anyways. Like we're just talking. So I don't need to take any cues about anything, but doing the radio show, I'm like, oh yeah, shit. There's like breaks and there's this, like there's way more stuff to think about. Have you always done like this radio thing? No, I worked for WWE. So um, I worked for them the last eight years, but I was uh, the first female commentator to like step into WWE called Monday Night Raw hosted all of their like kickoff shows for panels and all that stuff. Hey, fun fact, me and Ray Mysterio are like big fans of each other. He sends you a mask? Yeah, I have a bunch of his masks. Every time he sends me one of those Roots of Fight jackets, he sends me the signed mask too that matches it. Did he give you like one of his Louis Vuitton masks yet? Or is he I didn't get one of the Louis out on Vuitton. those ones? Ah, uh, I didn't know that was an option, but I will be sending him the text as <laughs> yeah. soon as this shit's over. I didn't know the Louis Vuitton ones were an option. He's like the king of Louis Vuitton. I think he like owns a Louis Vuitton. He's he got everything. Like his lawyer... And then my old manager were friends. So then I got really tight with his lawyer. I didn't even know that she represented Ray. I just happened to like be in a conversation and someone said something about professional wrestling. And like growing up, I was the huge professional wrestling fan. And now like my middle kid is really getting into it. So it's a lot of fun. But who's your kid like? What, like, what are you guys watching? She likes all the females, which is a lot of fun. She hates Ronda Rousey though. It's, it's hilarious. <laughs> it's the funniest shit in the world. Um, she can't stand Ronda. I don't know why. Hey, the heart wants what the heart wants. I just happened to mention that Ray Mysterio was like my favorite wrestler. Like my, it's like Ray Mysterio and Stone Cold were like, they were the shit. And she was like, oh my God, here, I'll call him. And she like called Ray like right there. And I almost fucking passed out. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Me and Ray were talking, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I just mentioned that like my middle kid, uh, her birthday was coming up and that she loves Ray and his son. Then he sends this video, like this happy birthday video to her. It was the coolest shit in the world. He's like the nicest man. Like he's just the best. He lives in Vegas now. So we're we're supposed to meet up uh, next time I'm in Vegas. We're going to have a drink. We need to all have like a little Ray Mysterio hangout. When you're in Vegas, we'll all have a little hang. Definitely. I would fangirl my ass off. (laughs) I feel like we can make that happen. Done and done. Anthony, it's been a lot of fun talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show and spilling your guts and giving me the whole backstory. All of that. Um, Cannot wait to see what happens, whether it's December or when this rematch is going to happen, but really looking forward to seeing what what other future holds for you. Well, thank you for having me on. Hopefully uh, I didn't lose you a bunch of listeners and we can do it again sometime. And I'll get a hold of you guys when I'm in Vegas and we'll, we'll go have a, a Ray meetup. We got to go hunt down those Louis Vuitton masks because he's holding out <laughs> Absolutely. on you. Absolutely. Holding out on you. <laughs> 
A big thank you to Anthony for hanging out with me, giving me some of his time to uh, to pick his brain and uh, shoot the shit with me. There was a lot of swearing in this episode, too. My condolences. I need to reel it back. It's too much. It is too much. And I don't realize it until after. We always say hindsight is twenty twenty, uh, But I could feel it during the interview. There's like unnecessarily an abundance of, of cursing. So I think I need to just like tone it down. I'm, do you guys care? Does anyone care? And not that I think anyone cares. I just like when I hear it back, it sounds like pure trash. It doesn't sound cool. Anyways, food for thought. Anthony, you're the man. You're welcome on the show anytime that you want to shoot the shit. Um, you guys can catch him over on a Sirius XM Fight Nation on a MMA Today to hear more from that man. And, and of course, looking forward to seeing what the future holds for him in the octagon. My dogs are barking. That is my cue to wrap this up. Thanks for listening to Oral Sessions. Next week, we've got more coming your way. We're going to turn October into some spooky Halloween episodes. Not everyone, but we're going to do a little sprinkling of them. So buckle up. 